A very good morning to you, saints. It is so great to see you, so great to have you here. And for all those of you that are watching us online, a very warm welcome. As we were spending this time worshiping our Lord, I just had a burden on my heart that we will pray as a family together for all those that are not doing well physically, those that are ill, those that are sick. Would you mind if we start off with that? Can I ask you for those of you that are physically not doing well or somebody in your family is not doing well, would you mind standing up? We just want to pray for all those, even those online that are not doing well physically, just that God will bring healing to them. Our Father, we humbly come this morning and pray for your touch on so many that are not feeling well, not doing well, physically not well, some in hospital, some in isolation. Lord Jesus, we cry out to you, will you have mercy upon them? Will you bring healing to them? Will you touch them in a deep way, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally as well? You've asked us to come and ask you in difficult times to meet with us. Meet with them, please, Lord. Restore them to full health. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, saints. This morning we are back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And I just want us to backtrack a little bit to get the context again in which Jesus was talking. We are only going to look this morning at four verses, but they are so key and so critical in the Sermon on the Mount. The four verses is from verse 13 to verse 16. But let's just walk through what happened up to this point. In verse one, it says the crowds came, they followed Jesus, he went up the mountain, he sat down and his disciples sat around him. There are three kinds of groups of people that were following Jesus. There were his disciples, they loved him. There were the crowds, they loved his miracles, they loved his teachings. And then there were the religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day. They loved to hate him. They loved to test him. They loved to argue with him. And as Pastor Paul said so beautifully right at the beginning, this sermon on the mountainside, his focus was on his disciples those that he have called and chosen to share his message with them. And then in verse two, he uses an expression that you only find here in scripture. He's, he opened his mouth to speak. It's not something we use nowadays, but that was an expression to use when you make a huge statement, when you say something completely transformational, totally radical. And that is what Jesus was doing. He was laying the foundation, teaching them about his kingdom. Can you imagine using words like blessed, blessed meaning God's approval, God's smile upon you, or as Max Lucado put it, the applause from heaven upon your life. You use that word, God's approval, God's smile, and in the same breath, mourning, persecution, 
It just doesn't gel. And then to follow that up with the promises, he says, yours is the kingdom. You'll receive comfort. You'll inherit the earth. You will see God. You will be called sons of God. I think they were grasping for air after each one of these beatitudes that he was sharing. And Pastor Bill was unpacking them so beautifully for us. And what we want to focus on today was how are we going to get these beatitudes lift out on the ground? Because these beatitudes are not just nice to hear or nice to haves or nice to knows. And that's what makes these four verses we are looking at today so, so important in the whole Sermon on the Mountainside. And Jesus uses two images, powerful images. He says to his disciples, I want you to be salt and I want you to be light. Salt is more a work within us and the light is the work through us. The salt has more to do with our being and the light has to do with our doing the way we engage with this world. But let's pray together as we sit at his feet and learn from him this morning. Our Father, we just thank you that we can gather together today in your name. You are here, God. And we as your disciples simply want to come and sit at your feet and learn from you. But also, will you help us how to practically go and live this out in a tangible way, please, in our world? Help us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go and read this passage in Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16, the four verses. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and be trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamb and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives life to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The first thing that he talks about is salt. You are the salt of the earth. You are. Listen carefully to what he starts off with. You are disciples. Not disciples, will you consider? Will you think about it? Will you send me an email when you're ready? You are disciples. You are the salt of the earth. He says five things to them when he says that. He says, I love you. I trust you. I believe in you. I have called you. I have chosen you. You are God's plan. And God does not have a plan B. His plan is going to take place through your lives. You are the salt of the earth. Salt in those days was used to be a preservative. And I'll explain to you in a moment how it works. 
It's also used to season our food, and we still use it today as in the same way, to purify. In those days, more than what we are doing today, although it's still an ingredient of it, they use it as fertilizer to make the earth provide greater crops. How are you and I going to grow in our saltiness. Salt is what we become the day we met Jesus. He provides us with our saltiness. But the question is, how are we going to grow in our saltiness? And the first one is, we do it by studying God's word. For us to become more like Jesus, we need to live in and through his word. We need to come and know him deeper and better through his word. That is how our saltiness increases. The second one is for us to have good friends. Bad company corrupts good character, Paul wrote to us in 1 Corinthians 15. We need to have great friends to be able to maintain our saltiness and to grow in our saltiness. Jesus just mentioned it in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are suffering. Suffering brings out the saltiness of God in our lives because it washes away all the other junk in our lives. It makes us tasty. It's hard. It's difficult but it makes us much more salty. And also, our saltiness is developed in us as a community. One of the vision of our church is to build community. As we rub shoulders with one another, we produce saltiness in each other. Then, the verse that Pastor Bill says is one of his favorite verses. It's for me so applicable. It's the one in Jeremiah 29, 7, where he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Israel was sent into exile in Babylon. And God said, I have sent you there. Please be salt in that city. Please pray for that city so that in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Don't go and sit there and feel sorry for yourself and moan and groan. You have been sent here by God. And wherever you are listening around the world, you are there because God has sent you there. Be there for the welfare of the city. Then he says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Salt's technical name is sodium chloride. And sodium chloride is a very stable chemical connection. It's very difficult for it to lose its saltiness. Only loses its saltiness when you mix it with other minerals. The way sodium chloride works, if you look at it microscopically, is when you, for example, put salt on your food, it breaks open the surface of whatever it gets in contact with, and it releases the taste, the smell of that specific product. 
The bad side of it, that's how we get corrosion. If salt falls on metal, it also breaks up the surface and it causes corrosion or rust. And that is why this image is so important to understand because you find many Christians, they are so salty, but they look more like they are corrosive. It's because they are not light at the same time. You need to be both of them in God's kingdom. Otherwise, you're gonna run into difficulties. What causes us to lose our saltiness? The first one is if we get mixed up with sin. Sin makes that we have lose, makes that we lose our saltiness. And the next one is worldliness. When we take on the flavor of this world, we are losing our saltiness. Being self-focused, self-righteous, self-pity, self-indulgence, you know, all the selves. We lose our saltiness. When we use inappropriate language, you are with people and you are expect something from them to come out of their mouth and something completely different come out. A man asked one of his friends, not his friends, somebody that he just met, he says, are you a Christian? Are you a Jesus follower? And he said to him, you tell me. Isn't that beautiful? You tell me. Do I look? Do I act? Do I behave differently from the world is behaving? And then there are many others, but we lose our saltiness by giving in to our temptations because, because we get mixed up with this world and the things in this world. It is no longer good. Sorry, before we get to the no longer good. The other way that we lose our saltiness is that salt in our weather clogs up, it becomes hard. Where the humidity is high, you all know the problem. Can I use the word pride? Pride makes that our salt is not flowing anymore. And then we need a violent shake-up by the Lord, and we don't understand why He's shaking us up. It's just because He wants to use you. Some believers are great salt shakers, but they keep it all for themselves. Two reasons why. The first one is because the crystals are too big and they don't appreciate it to be grounded by God a little bit before it can be useful. And the others don't want to lose their top. They think they can serve God on their conditions. Don't be a salt shaker, Christian. Salt in here is useless. Salt out there makes the difference. And then the last one is humility. Sorry, there are many other reasons, but humility. Can I ask you to remember humility by remembering humidity? The opposite of humidity is humility. No, it's not true. I just want you to remember humility. <laughs> because humility make my salt to run out. It becomes dry, I can spray it again. Humidity causes it to clump together. It is like pride in our lives. And then it says, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled, trampled under people's feet. This was again an expression that they used in those days to say, it has become utterly worthless. 
It is the most worthless thing that you can imagine. You, even today, you will find next to the Red Sea these big white piles of so-called salt. The reason they are there is because it looks like salt, it feels like salt, but it's totally tasteless. And then the only thing is to get trampled under your feet. And even for that, using it for a road, when the rain comes, it all washes away again. Completely worthless. This is the same word that is used for us that are disciples of the Lord Jesus, but have lost our tastiness. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, he lived about 150 years after this sermon was preached. Tertullian was radical for the Lord Jesus because the church was again moving away, becoming more worldly, and he wanted to keep the church on the straight and the narrow way. And a businessman came to him and said to him, Father Tertullian, I have a great business proposition but it doesn't really align with God's word. What must I do? I must live. Tertullian looked at him like this. He says, really, you must live? He says, Paul said the opposite. He said, for me to die is gain, and to live is Christ. This whole sermon on the mountain is turning our world completely upside down. To be salt is not an option. It is a must. Let's go on to look at the light in this world. Jesus started off in John 8 verse 12. He says there, I am the light of the world. And then he comes to his disciples here on the mountainside and he says to them, you, you are the light of the world. I think they were just so surprised. The transfer that has taken place. But it gives you an idea of the weight of the moment. Jesus didn't want this sermon that he is preaching to them just to fall to the ground and just go in in one ear and out of the other one and not transform lives. Because this is the message that will form the foundation of his church. And he says to his Disciples, you are the light of the world. And he says the same five things to them again. I love you. I trust you. I believe in you. I have called you. I have chosen you. You are God's plan for this world. God does not have a plan B. You are it, disciples. Light provides for us warmth and safety. So often when our children would get ill and you sit up with them all throughout the night, praying, pleading with God, nursing them, holding them, caring for them, and you just see dawn and you just see the sun rise, it is as if it gives you new hope again. Just the dawn of day. That is what light does. It takes away the darkness, the night. It also reveals things as they really are. I cannot stand here before you this morning and hide something on the inside. Yeah, I can hide my heart within, but I'm in the light. And that is what gives us freedom. God's light also brings enormous healing in our lives, in our pain, in our agony, in our 
everyday life to allow the light of God to shine into our lives. And then the beauty of light. Just the beauty of seeing you reflecting the image of God. The beauty outside of the ocean and the beach and the green and the gardens. Magnificent. It's all a reflection of the light that is falling upon them. But we need to pause here for a moment. Because the beautiful world in which we are living in is not a reflection of the spiritual darkness that we are finding ourselves in. Saints, this world is very, very dark. Max Dupree has a beautiful leadership saying. He says, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. His last responsibility is to say thank you. And in between, he is to be a servant and a debtor. Can I help you to define reality this morning? John said it so beautifully in John 3 verse 19. It says, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We have a physical world and we have a spiritual world. Because we can see, taste, feel, and smell this world, this is where our attention is being grabbed every day. We are not so aware of the spiritual world, and yet the spiritual world is equally great. And to make it a little bit more tangible for us, in other words, to bring the spiritual world a little bit closer home today into our physical world, I want to ask you to take out your phones, please. Will you do that? You're not often asked to take them out. I'm not saying switch them on. I just say take them out. <laughs> and we are going to dim the house lights now. And those for you that are watching online, please don't call your service provider or adjust your TV set. We will be back with you in two minutes again. Just bear with me. I'm just trying to illustrate something this morning. Beloved, this is the spiritual world in which we are living. It's dark. It's like the inside of a whale, if you want to use Jonah's expression. It's dark. And what makes it even darker is what John says, those that are in the darkness chooses to be in the darkness. Can I ask you now to switch on your light, please, and shine it towards the ceiling? Wow, isn't that incredible? Beloved, we have only 3%. Just keep it up, please, unless your battery is flat. Just, we have only 3% of light shiners in South Florida. We only have 3% of Jesus' followers in South Florida. Do you see the massive difference you are making this morning in this auditorium? And that is what Jesus wants us to go and make out there. And he uses two images for us to follow. He says, one, you are a city on a hill. And you see now how magnificent this looks like. Maybe we should have our service like this every Sunday. And we can cut down on our electric bill. That will be huge. <laughs> can I ask you now to light at your feet? He says, it will be a light unto your feet and a lamp unto your path. Thank you. You can bring the lights on back again, please. 
That is the picture of this world in which we are living in. Let's go and unpack this world a little bit. This is our reality. This light that we have just been looking at, this light of God represents three things to us. He says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And this light that is shining into our lives is physically, it means it is the glory of God. It, when Jesus was on the mountain of configuration and God's presence was there, physically his light means his presence. When he met Saul on the road to Damascus, his light means his glory, his presence. When you've met Jesus, his light is shining on you. It means his presence is within your life. Intellectually, it means truth. When his light is shining into your life, it means his truth is reigning in your heart. And morally, it means holiness. There is no place for sin when God's light is shining in our lives. Jesus came to his disciples and he said to his disciples, who do the people say I am? One said you are a prophet, the other one said you are Elijah. And then he turned to them and he said, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, he only opened his mouth to change his feet. He was the first one to say, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Simon Barjona, Simon of Jonas, man did not reveal this to you, but God in heaven. If I ask you the same question this morning, have you asked this dark world in which we are living, how do they see the church? What do they say we are? And the second question is, what do they say you are? Do they say you are the salt? Do they say we are the light of the world? Nor do people light up a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives life to all in the house. We are not going to do this. I only ask this as a question, only as an illustration. Say if we would close the doors of this church next Sunday. Who will be upset? Will the community come and bang at the doors and say, Church, Bokereton, you cannot do this to us. Or will it merely be an inconvenience for me and you because we need to find another place? We need to find a new parking spot. We need to look for a new seat in the church. Are we truly the light in this community? Because if we are that light, there is no darkness. He uses a beautiful example here about a light. And three things about this light that he's talking about. He says, people take a lamp and put it under a basket, and we will come to that, but on a stand. That is the purpose of the light in your house. You put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. First thing is, you need to light a lamp. A lamp doesn't just go on by itself. You need to light it. In those days, it was oil. Today, it has a battery in it. 
It needs a power source. Our lives needs the power of the Holy Spirit to live in and through us, to shine the light of the Lord's glory in and through us. The second thing is, when you take this light, it says you place it on a table, on a stand in your house. God is doing the placing of our lights in this world. You are here right now in this community. God has placed you here. Can I invite you to shine where he has placed you? If you are watching online, maybe you are lying in hospital, God has placed you there right now for that purpose, to shine even when you feel miserable. Shine. The third thing that we do This light starts in the house. Why is that so important? We sit with the biggest, I believe, spiritual challenge in the church and in society, and that is fatherlessness. The percentage of incarcerated people that grew up without fathers is astronomical. There was a father that had a precious son. The father's name was Jim Johnson. And he called his son also the same. And they called him JJ, just not to have so much confusion in the house. He loved his son. His son loved him. And then they had a huge conflict. And his son moved out of the house. A few years later, the father came to know the Lord. And he had such a desire to be reconciled with his son. But he couldn't find him anywhere. He tried his best. This happened 40 years ago. He tried his best, but he couldn't find him. And then out of desperation, he said, let me put a little advert in the New York Times. Maybe I can connect with him again. And he did that. He said, Jim Johnson, Brackett, JJ, this is your father. I'm so sorry for what I've said and done to you. Please forgive me. But I would so love to see you again. Would you meet me at this day, at this time? at the train station in New York City, please. And when the father, Jim Johnson, arrived at the train station, there were a hundred Jim Johnsons waiting to meet their father because they grew up fatherless. Some homes have the gift of having a father, but he's an absent father. This light starts shining. This light of disciple-making starts in our homes with our children. And it's sad to say so many of Jesus' disciples, they are amazing outside, but when they get back in the home, they become like devils or demons. Let us shine brightly in our homes. In the same way, sorry, how do we get under the basket? It says here, and put it under a basket. How do we get under a basket? How do we begin to live like this? This is not what God has called us to be. Just three suggestions. The first one is when we begin to love ourselves more than we love God. Self-love. It means that all that light gets absorbed in ourselves. The second one is when we love the world and the things of the world. The word says so clearly, when the love of the world is in us, 
the love or the light of the Father cannot shine through us. And then the third one, when we are being fearful or when we become so introspective, the whole world is just caught up in myself. The light of God cannot shine through us. We are blurring it. We are dimming it. It says in the last part, let your light shine before people in verse 16 before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How are we going to do this? How are we going to make this light shine in this world? Just three suggestions, and again, there are many more. The first one is to love the way we are loved. Jesus loves us unconditionally, unselfishly. He says, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. This brought a whole new dimension of understanding, to love unselfishly, unconditionally. And one of those relationships is the marriage relationship. It is not a conditional relationship. It is not a tit for tat. You do this, then I'll do this. It's an unconditional relationship. The second way in which we make this light shine is to spend time with Jesus because it's not our light that is shining out of us. It is His light. And for us to study His Word, to know what He is like, to become more like Him, and then to be visible. Let me tell you the story of little Emily. Emily was a five-year-old girl. It was her first day at school. During the first week, Emily loved Jesus with all her heart. And when she was there in the school, she quickly realized, but this teacher that she has does not know Jesus. So at the end of the week, just before they went home, she came to Mrs. Smith and with her big brown eyes, she said, Mrs. Smith, would you come to church with me on Sunday, please? It will be so special to have you there. Mrs. Smith said, yeah, Emily, sure. What time, where? She explained to her. And on Sunday, when Emily and her parents came to the church, she said, Mom and Dad, may I wait here at the door for Mrs. Smith? I don't want her to come and feel lonely, and she doesn't know anybody here. Yeah, sure, you can wait. Five-year-old girl waited at the door. No, Mrs. Smith. The service started. Emily was so disappointed. She sat right at the back. Monday morning, she went back to Mrs. Smith and says, Mrs. Smith, what happened? I didn't see you yesterday. Oh, and Mrs. Smith had a list of excuses about this long. Every night, Emily would pray for Mrs. Smith. And Friday, just before the school broke out, she went again. Mrs. Smith, would you please come Sunday with me to church? Yeah, I promise I will be there, Emily. Sure, I will come. I see you there. Well, Sunday come, Sunday went. No, Mrs. Smith. And Emily was so disappointed. Monday morning, she went back and says, Mrs. Smith, did I miss you? What happened? And again, Mrs. Smith had this long list of excuses. And the next week, Friday, she came to Mrs. Smith again. Mrs. Smith, will you come with me to church? That Sunday, Mrs. Smith arrived. 
Emily took her hand. She walked in. She sat down next to her. And the whole service, Emily was holding Mrs. Smith's hand. Mrs. Smith liked it so much that the next week she came back. And the next week she came back. And the third week, Mrs. Smith gave her life to the Lord Jesus. That week, Emily went home and says, Mommy, we've got a new teacher. Mommy says, what happened to Mrs. Smith? No, Mommy, it's the same Mrs. Smith, but it's Jesus. She's not shouting at us. She's not angry with us any almost. She loves us. She's the kindness herself. Emily was this one that allowed the light of Jesus and the salt of Jesus to shine in and through her life to her teacher. Let's bring this to a close. How are we going to respond? How are we going to give our reply to this sermon on the mountain, and especially being salt and light? You remember when we started off, we said there are three groups of people that love to follow Jesus. The first one, or the third one, were the Pharisees or the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders of the day, they ha- love to hate him. They love to argue with him. They love to different, be different from him. If you are a religious leader, I would so love you to come and meet my Savior. He's the most amazing king, most amazing lawyer, most amazing lover. Afterwards, some of us will be here, some of us will be in the foyer. Come to us. We would love to pray with you. We would love for you that maybe you were Mrs. Smith also to become one of his disciples. The second group, maybe you're still part of the crowd. You love the worship. You love the messages. You love to be here in this atmosphere. But you've never come to a moment that you say, Jesus, I love you. Maybe there was a time that you have loved him, but you have fallen backwards. You've become lukewarm again. It's time to turn around. Come back. Let's pray with you. And then the third group are his disciples. All I have to say to you is let's do it. We can do it together. He says to us the same five things that he said to his disciples. You are, in other words, I love you. I trust you. I believe in you. I have called you. I have chosen you. You are God's plan. Let's all stand as we pray together.